Welcome back to Real Talk Torah, courtesy of the database with Rabbi Yoshua Eisenberg, where for today's shear, we are going to discuss the little-known tragedy of Moshe Rabbeinu's grandson. Now, unless you learn all of Navi, and all of Shas for that matter, you might not have any clue who Moshe Rabbeinu's grandson was in the first place. There is a question that's asked, it's addressed in Parshas Pinchas when it comes to Moshe Rabbeinu designating a new leader for Klal Yisrael, and the Medrash makes reference to the fact that Moshe Rabbeinu would have loved for his children, or one of his children anyway, to succeed him as the leader of the Bnei Yisrael, and ultimately Yehoshua was selected. And the question that that naturally gives rise to is what happened to Moshe Rabbeinu's lineage? What about his legacy? What about at least the legacy of his family? And what it seems to be is that not only um, do we not necessarily find um, any leadership positions given to Moshe Rabbeinu's children, but we find a very negative turn for at least his grandchild. And wanted to take a look at the story just a little bit, give an overview of the incredible and strange story, I guess incredibly strange story that appears at the end of Sefer Shoftim, towards the end. So it's in the second um, book of Navi. And we have this story of Pesel Micha, another perhaps not such a well-known story, if you're not, especially if you don't learn Navi, uh, but the story of Micha or Micha Yahu. And he created a Navodazara, or really his, his mother created a Navodazara, which he sort of took care of. It's a very strange story, very hard to understand the back and forth in the story, but it has much to do with Moshe Rabbeinu's grandson. Now, if you look at the, the Navi straight, you won't exactly find Moshe Rabbeinu's name explicitly connected to his, this grandson of his, but you do find so many hints, too many hints, that you can't really um, ignore them. And, you know, once you see them, you can't unsee them. And for many people, it could be that if you just learn the Navi through and you get to the chapter that talks about Pasal Micha, the image, uh, the Avodah the statue that Micha owned, if you just read the passage through, if you're, um, I guess if you have a good background in Chumash at the very least, you'll notice at least one or two or more of the parallels between the life of Moshe Rabbeinu's grandson, who for now we're just going to call an unidentified Levi, and, and Moshe Rabbeinu himself. A lot of parallels between the stories. And then when you get to the Gemara, then you, and then, then you sort of see the connection to Moshe Rabbeinu at the end. But just to give you the story itself, and then we'll try to see what we can glean from it. But once again, a very strange story. If you go to Sefer Shoftim and you go to, you go to Perak Yud Zion and Perak Yud Ches, we get to hear about this really strange story. And it starts with Michayahu, who is apparently um, from Har Ephraim. And Rashi tells us that even though this story takes place at the end of Shoftim, at least that's where it's recorded, it really took place earlier, in the times of Asniel ben Kanaz. He was one of the, one of the first of the Shoftim. And Michael is having this conversation with his mother about how he, um, he regained um, 1,100 pieces of silver that um, he, he got back for her. It's not so clear from the Navi what happened to it. But um, she dedicates... Uh, a pesel umasecha, 
That's the same exact Lashon that we find by the Egel. She dedicates to Hashem a Peselu Masecha. And the obvious problem is that Hashem doesn't like idols. Um, Hashem doesn't like idolatry. And this seems to be like a theme with a lot of tragic characters in Tanakh who apparently have this, I don't even know if I would call it a, du- a dual, um, um, dual loyalties, because they are prepared to do this in the name of God, in the name of Hashem, but they're doing it the wrong way. You know, they have a similar situation with Nadav and Avihu, and even though we wouldn't necessarily call their Avoda an Avoda Zara, but they did in fact offer an Aish Zara, and this was a tragedy in its own right. So you do find an Avoda, and the word Zara is attached to it. So just to give you just an idea of how people can be very tragic individuals attempting to do the right thing, but doing the very wrong thing. In the meantime, um, the so the man of our story, Micha, he, you know, he apparently had this idol in his home, and the Navi describes this house of gods that he made, which is unreally, un, really unclear what that means, but the Navi describes Trophim that he had. We know of Trophim from the story of Lavan and Rachel, so we see a lot of um, different hints that this is a recipe for disaster. And the Navi reminds us that there's no king in Israel, and that man just did what was... Um, what was proper in his own eyes. This is a, a tagline that we find scattered throughout um, Shoftim and mainly towards the end of Shoftim, which sort of describes one of the flaws of the era of the Shoftim. And it wasn't the Shoftim's fault, but it was really the lack of dedication to Hashem. And we know that even in the times of the kings, things weren't right. So it's it's not even clear that just a king would have spared things. But the point is that People's loyalties were all over the place. People were not being guided. And this is the main idea. People weren't being guided by the Ratzana Torah. All right, they were being guided by other kinds, other, you know, other Im- imaginations of what maybe you would think that God might want, but of course it's not um, the Ratzana Torah. So, and the Navi continues to tell us that, um, that there's this Levi, a Na'ar, a young Levi who came from Beis Lechem, and the Navi says that he was Garshan, that he was a stranger there, which um, might be the first parallel that you'll notice directly to Moshe Rabbeinu, who is also described as a foreigner, if you look in Shmos, Bez, Mechaf Bez. And the Navi tells us that this Levi went to Micha's house, and Micha has this conversation with the Na'ar, and... The, apparently, the, this Levi seems to be like, I don't know if he's a fugitive, but he's alone. He's looking for a place to stay. And Micha um, tells this Na'ar, this Levi, to stay and to become a father and a Kohen. Almost like he's looking, he, almost like Micha is looking for um, um, from our, for Hanhaga. He's looking for Eitzah for this person to stay with him. So he wants him to stay, and he offers him ten pieces of silver, and then the Navi describes how this Levi, um, in fact, accepted the offer of the uh, of, of Micha very enthusiastically. The lashon of, of the Navi is Vayoel Halevi Lasheves Esa Ish, that the that the Navi that the Levi very much wanted to live with the man with with Micha. Now, this pasuk, which is in Yud Zayin Yud Aleph, in uh, in Shoftim. That's the pasuk that that it, like the first time I was learning through the Navi myself. That's the one that grabbed me because that's a complete parallel 
um, a complete parallel to our parasha, parasha Shemos, from this past week, Bez Chav Aleph, where the Pasuk says, Vayoa Moshe Ish. And Moshe really much wanted to dwell with the man. That Lushen of Vayoel is a Lushen of really strong desire, but not only that, a Lushen of a Shavua. And the, the, the Midrashim go back and forth with several different explanations of what it was, the, what the Shavua was that Moshe made. Rashi quotes the most mild and innocent. Rashi on Chumash quotes the most mild and innocent of the Shavuos that Moshe might have made, that he was not going to leave Midian until Yisro gave him permission. However, if you look at the Midrash, you'll find several other possibilities that are much less flattering, much more tragic, and much more shocking. And we'll, we'll, we'll get to what, what those might have been. But Anyway, this Levi, he becomes a Kohen, right? Micha makes him a Kohen um, to, to, for his particular, um, again, his base Avodah, his base Avodah Zara, again, which we're, we're still describing as something that was sort of being dedicated to Hashem, but obviously it's Avodah Zara because it's not what God wants, right? Just like, you know, again, just to use the mashal of Nadav and Avihu again, they, they, they brought a fire meant to be for Hashem, but it was considered Zara because... It was completely in the tzura of something that Hashem doesn't like. And it seems that, that Micha is really happy to have this Na'ar Levi at his house. And again, the story reminds us of Moshe living with Yisro. Then you get to Parakir Ches um, of Shoftim, where we get to basically um, this part two. And then we have a weird story about, um, um, a continuation of the story that some people from Shevet done, they... they they also are looking for a place to live. And apparently um, they didn't have sufficient land, so they sent these five Anashim Araglim, um, and, and they sent them into Harafrayim. And apparently they get into this argument with the Levi. Right? They want to know what he's doing there, who brought him here, why is he here, what's his whole, you know, what's his business? And Levi, this Levi answers, he says, um, you know, Micha brought me here, he supported me. Um, he hired me to be his priest, and that's about it. And and so um, the the Gemara records how they were trying to understand um, what the slavey, who they apparently recognized, what was he doing here? Like they're like, what are you doing here in this base of Odazara? Now, meanwhile, these these people from Don were themselves not so righteous, and we're going to see that they were also. Um, they had an affinity towards Avodazara, but they were kind of expecting better of this individual. And so the, um, the Gemara of Abbasra on um, Daf uh, Kuf Tess and, and Kuf Yud ta- describes the story. And they and they apparently, they, they kind of just ask him, like, are we going to be successful when we try to conquer some more land? And they want him to consult um, God. Now, Targum Yonason says, says it's a reference to Hashem. Rashi says it's a reference to the Trophim, to the Avodah So, they're, again, they're having this really, really strange conversation. And he tells them, to, he says, he says, Leich b'shalom. he says, go in peace. He says, go towards Hashem. Um, and Rashi apparently um, here says that, that, Micha, that the Levi, sorry, the Levi meant to intimate that that um, you should go towards Hashem because the idols are worthless. Meaning this Levi seemed to have an understanding that Avodah was bad, and yet he was engaging, you know, he was, he was, he was um, acting and serving as a priest, even though he didn't believe in it. Like, if you could imagine a Jew serving as a, a pastor or a minister in a, in a church somewhere, 
and kind of like knowing that it's wrong and just saying like, yeah, this is something I'm doing. It's my side job. I'm just trying to make some money over here or, you know, serving in a, maybe in a shul that, um, or maybe, or maybe we'll call it a synagogue or is it better like a place that's not actually representative of Torah values. And, you know, it's just, you know, just, you know, just, just making some money over here. Um, but just, you know, it's just a thought, um, a thought to think about, but this is clearly like against what Hashem wants. Anyway, the, the Navi tells us that the, the people from Dun, they arrive in Laish and they, and, and then there's this, you know, we'll, we'll just skip a little bit for now, but they, uh, when, when the people from Dun, they, the, the, the spies, they go back and they tell the rest of their people about these idols so all of a sudden, the rest of these idols, um, you know, 600 of these armed people from Dun, they come and they come to Micha's house, like the meaning because somehow the, these idols attracted them. And the Maraglam came and they stole the Pesel, the Pasuk, the Pasuk says they stole a Pesel, an Aphod, Trafim, and the Masecha. Un, it's again, really unclear w- w- what these different objects are, but what seems to be um, simple enough is that these are objects of Avodah and this Levi Kohen guy, who you know we still haven't quite identified yet, he's like, "What are you guys doing? Can you you know can you you know give those back to me?" And um, and the and basically the the people from Dun they sort of kidnap the Levi and they said, "You better be our father and be our priest," <laughs> meaning don't work for Micha anymore. So basically, they 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 stole the quote unquote rabbi of of Micha's base of Odazara. They stole the Odazara and they said, we're taking over. Oh, we're making a breakaway, I mean, and, um, and Micha is like, what'd you guys do? You stole my Odazara. You stole my rabbi. You stole my priest. And Micha is just, you know, just upset with that. And, he, and he's just, you know, he's just despondent. And they basically threaten him and he puts his tail between his legs. And then, then the people from Dun, they set fire to Laish and they basically... Um, conquer the area. And then at the very end of this really, again, this just really bizarre story, the Navi tells us the, the name of this priest. And it says his name is Yehonasan ben Gershom ben Menashe. That's how, that's how they trace his lineage. Yehonasan, the son of Gershom, the son of Menashe. Now, if you look at the word Menashe in the Navi, the Nun is uh, nun tluya. We don't. I don't know how many times we find this in Tanakh, but the nun is hanging, meaning the nun kind of looks like it's sticking out a little bit, almost like it's not even entirely in the word. And if you go back to the Gemara, which talks about this story in Bavibasra, the Gemara, in fact, says that, yeah, this is sort of a cover-up. It's not supposed to say Menashe. It's supposed to say Moshe. This is Yonasan, the son of Gershom. We know Gershom from this week's Parsha Shemos, and Gershom is the son of Moshe. And why exactly is it traced to Menashe with that little nun hanging there? So the Gemara says that this individual, he ended up following the behavior of Menashe Melchihuda, who would come later in history. But Menashe Melchihuda became the one of the representatives of idolatry and one of the biggest of David Azar, especially you know, a king of Yehuda who led people astray. So that's a fair representation of what this individual did. You know, this very tragic and confused individual, apparently, um, um, who, again, seemingly knowing that Avodazar is bad, but kind of just was desperate um, to, to make a buck. And 
and we'll, we'll go into, again, try to give some svara for what his thinking was. But at the end of the day, it's not going to be justified. But we have um, the, um, a manifestation of a principle that we find in Chazal. And the Torah Tamima quotes this often, that we're tole ha-makulkal. We take the... The um, we're we're associating, we're we're discrediting, or giving the credit for the negative to someone who's already manifesting negative. The person who's already, you know, the, all the ruination where we are, um, we are associating the ruination. We're associating the negative press to someone who's already manifest negative behavior. So we find, for example, um, when you when you have Bilam and we on the and Chazabul will take um, certain things that are written about Bilam and Tanakh and they'll, um, I don't know if I would say blow it out of proportion, but they would they would ascribe negative behaviors to people like Bilam or maybe to Lot or to to Esav or something like that. And they'll say, or Dasna Naviram is a good example we had in, in Parsha Shemos as well. You find negative behavior, we associate it with Dasna Naviram because that was clearly their personality in Parsha's Korach. And so we're, we're, we're taking um, a rabbinic agadic liberty, so, so to speak, to associate the negative behavior with them. And we have a similar thing with Menashe Melech Yehuda, where we're associating the negative behavior of Moshe Rabbeinu's grandson with him and not with Moshe. Um, and this principle originally comes from a concept in Nida that um, if, if you have two women who, you know, one of whom is a Nida, and then, then they, there's a stain that's found, let's say they're sleeping in the same bed, we assume that the stain, the blood stain, came from the one who was known to be a Nida. That's Tolaha Kilkobimakulkal. You know, we're not going to associate it with a woman who does not have that, um, um, you know, that, uh, that preconceived, um, I guess, uh, that. Uh, that hint that she was already Anida, so we associated with the one who was known to be Anida. It's, a, it's, a, it's sort of like a Chazaka. So, anyway, this is what the Gemara tells us about um, about this guy. And now we have to try to figure out again his his real backstory and like what is the bridge between this Levi and Moshe Rabbeinu, and how do we connect the two? Besides for the fact that they might be biologically related, and you know, Chazal are saying it, and it's really you know it's it's hard to imagine. You have this guy Yehonasan, who is the son of Gershom and then the son of Menashe. Is it possible there was a guy named Menashe? Yes, but with all of the textual you know cues and clues, it seems to be. Um, um, at least associated enough that as much as we don't want this to be the grandson of Moshe Rabbeinu, it seems, you know, like all, all the writing is there on the wall that, um, you know, that, that, that this is, you know, all, you know, all the hints are there, all the signs are there, this is, that this is Moshe's um, descendant. So when it comes to the Lashon of Ayoel Moshe, that Moshe wanted to live with Yisro, or that he swore to live with him. We mentioned that Rashi, based on the Midrashon and the Shemos Rabbah and the Tanchuma, so they, they want to suggest that it means that Moshe swore not to leave Yisro. However, if you look at the Mechilta de Rabbi Shemal, you look at the Yaakov Shemoni, the, the Midrash explains over there that Moshe, what he swore to was he pledged his son to be temporarily devoted to Vodazara. Now, how could, how, how could Moshe Rabbeinu do such a thing, and why would Yisro want such a thing of him? So some say that the idea is that Yisro um, himself practiced all of Odazara, and therefore, and he eventually came to the conclusion that Hashem must be the real God of the world, and so therefore, um, he, Yisro wanted 
some, the same thing for this grandson of Moshe, who is obviously going to be, uh, sorry, for the son of Moshe, I should say, the son of Moshe, the Gershom, Moshe's Bechor. And this would be Yisro's grandson. So Yisro wanted his grandson to follow a similar derech, to see the world and then come to the realization of Hashem. Now, um, so meaning, even according to this version, it was never going to be a, t- a, a permanent thing that the son would be um, dedicated to Avodah Zarah. But anyway, the, the Gemara of Basra on Kuf Tesmet Beis, it draws more parallels between the Lashonos and our story and the story of Moshe Rabbeinu. And once again, it reveals that Moshe's grandson is this individual, that this guy, his name is Yehonah's son, and he can be traced back to Gershom, Moshe's Bechor. And the Gemara, when it gets to Kuf Yud Amid Aleph, the Gemara describes the back and forth between Yehonah's son and the people from Dun. And they basically say, hey, aren't you Moshe's grandson? And you're a Kohen for Avodah Zarah? And the defense that Yehonah's son gives is that he had a tradition from Moshe that it's better to act as a priest for idolatry than to live off another person's charity. And we could have we could have tried to suggest why that might be. That's a pretty wild thing to suggest. But maybe you might say that being overly dependent on and devoting faith to another person is borderline of Odazara already, which might possibly be worse than, you know, putting on a show and working for Avodazara temporarily. You know, it kind of reminds us of Aaron Cohen a little bit. You know, Aaron Cohen was stalling and just, you know, when it came to making the Agel, in this particular case, this guy, you know, it wasn't like he was really trying to do Vodazara. He was he was a Das Torah for this guy. And you could say maybe he was, you know, he was trying to help him out and he would have made him do less of Vodazara than he really would have done. The Gemara, however, um, counters this argument and says that Moshe never really advocated working for Mamash Vodazara, rather for an Avoda that is Zara to you, a foreign uh, practice, a foreign craft that is difficult and uncomfortable for you. Better to do that. Um, and accept that as a job than to accept charity. Uh, but we see the certain sense of desperation that this levy apparently had that he needed to make some money. Anyway, the Yerushalmi in Brachos tries to lighten things, and, um, and uh, it's on uh, um, at least uh, one version of the Yerushalmi can be found in Brachos on Duff. Um, it's Samach Daladam and Beis, and now you have to, you know, you know that the Dafim aren't really the same in all versions of the Yerushalmi, but the, the Yerushalmi says that Yonason would warn the people that the idols were powerless, meaning he was trying to, you know, tell people that this wasn't legitimate. Meanwhile, um, the Balaturu points out another Remez that connects the two. There are two places in Tanakh that we see the words Ula Kohen. Right, we find it by Yeso Ulachoin Midyon that he had seven daughters. Um, here it says Ulachoin um, um, in our um, Pasuk, I mean in, in Navi, which, and so, and so we find that this Kohen is a reference to Yehonas on himself. But the point is that um, you know, Moshe, it seems to be that Moshe Rabinu, um, what we get from the Midrashim is that because Moshe Rabinu pledged some really wild things about his son, so later, it would manifest in his grandson that his grandson would eventually do Vodazara. And there, I think there's what to be said about this. I mean, there's another version that, that Moshe Rabbeinu just pledged not to give his son a brismila, his, his Bechor son. And uh, something that we spoke about in Parsha Panorama in the past is that the story about Moshe Rabbeinu being about to be killed because he didn't give his son a bris. So the Rashi and the Ibn Ezra take up the position that this is a reference to Moshe Rabbeinu's second son, Eliezer. 
there are other midrashim which suggests that this is actually a reference to the firstborn, the Bechor, um, to uh, um, his son Gershom. And in Parsha Panorama, we kind of, um, so we, we, um, and I, I found uh, more than one um, um, perush that suggested that this is probably a reference to Moshe's Bechor, even though we're, you know, we're, I don't want to say blinded by Rashi, but we've been um, trained to, and we're conditioned by Rashi's read that this is a reference to Eliezer. But there are other reads out there that say that's a reference to um, to Gershom, and I really felt that that's a compelling read, at least a, as a upshot read in the story. Anyway, regardless, it seems that Moshe Rabbeinu is being punished for 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 the just the the notion and maybe even the position that he took that he prepared himself to designate his son for Vodazara, so it later was manifest in his grandson. Just to, yeah, so it's uh, when I, that which I mentioned about the circumcision. I see here that it's, it was the Rokeach who said that Yisro made Moshe pledge not to circumcise his son. And the reason why Moshe Rabbeinu went along with it was because he thought that eventually he would have Siat Deshmaya and get Yisro to change his mind. Um, but, um, and Rav Chaim Kanievsky, the way he explained this story is that. Since, uh, you know, Yisr had already done Shuva by this point. And the idea that, that he wanted, um, Moshe to give his son over to Vodazara was the idea that we kind of explained earlier that he wanted Moshe to withhold Chinuch for, for his child and let the child find Hashem on his own. And, and, and apparently he did. He eventually did serve Hashem, but apparently, it um, the damage was still done. It's sort of the, the whatever whatever uh, impact from the Avodah came. It, it translated into the life of his, of his son, which would be Moshe's grandson. And what's 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 I think most fascinating about all of this is that if we think about the background of Micha, which we did not yet talk about. We just talked about the background of Moshe's grandson, but. The um, Rashi to Sanhedrin, uh, Kufalaf and Beis quotes uh, Midrash Agada regarding Micha, that when Micha was a baby, and maybe you're familiar with this Midrash, that Moshe pulled Micha out of the pyramid wall and saved him. After Hashem warned him, I don't think you should save this one, this guy's going to be a Russia. And Moshe Rabbeinu reasonably, I would argue, reasonably had the hashkafa of Hadikav Shidrachman Alamalach, you know, like, um, well, why do you care about? You know, the secrets of Hashem, if, you know, right now you see a child that needs to be saved, save him, right? And this, this is like the old question, what if you met baby Hitler, Yamach Shemo? Um, it would be the right thing to kill him as a baby, you know, if you go back in time. And it's, it's, a, it's a hard question to answer because we know what he would become. And yet at that time, he hadn't done anything yet. Uh, maybe the, the answer would be to, you know, to take him, if you if were able to meet baby Hitler and maybe you can take him and influence him to do the right thing and he could be the biggest tzaddik in the world. You know, it's, it's, it's hard to know. Meanwhile, Hashem warned Moshe Rabbeinu not to spare Micha. Moshe Rabbeinu spared Micha. And Micha would be the one that would hire out Moshe's grandson later. So it was, it seems to be, this is the making, it's Moshe Rabbeinu's own making of, of the fate of his grandson that, um, that, on the one hand, he's the one who, who, who left Micha standing. And there are other Midrashim that say that Micha contributed to the Egel Hazav as well. And then there's the fact that Moshe Rabbeinu 
allowed even for a possibility that one of his own children would be given to Vodazara. So that came back to haunt him, you know, not, at least not in Moshe's lifetime, but um, in, um, when Moshe was gone, that his grandson would be doing a Vodazara. Again, in this very, very bizarre story. And it makes you kind of like wonder, like, what are we supposed to take away from this? You know, the, you know, like Yisro, in fact, succeeded. We would argue Yisro succeeded in finding Hashem even after experiencing all the Avodah of the world. And, you know, was in, in, in a similar situation, are we supposed to not do what Moshe did and save Micha? It could be that if Hashem is warning you and telling you not to do it, there's a good reason for it. But at the end of the day, you know, it seems that Moshe and his actions led to real spiritual tragedy. And it makes you wonder what went wrong. And what's also interesting is that, and maybe, and this is the answer, but Moshe Rabbeinu showed much concern for a child's physical well-being when it came to Micha. He didn't express that same amount of concern for a child's spiritual well-being when it was his own child. right? He, Moshe Rabbeinu pleaded that Hashem save the physically endangered Micha, yet for whatever reason, you know, um, and whatever whatever it was that he accepted to agree to when it came to his own son with Yisro, whether it meant to not give him a bris or it meant to give him to Avodah Zarah or to withhold Chinuch, the point is he agreed to spiritually endanger his own progeny. And, and, maybe, and maybe like this lack of consistency, and it's hard to ascribe something of this to Moshe Rabbeinu, right? Like Moshe Rabbeinu was the most spiritual individual ever. He was the greatest person in history. But yet it seemed that, you know, at that point, at least, maybe, you know, when Moshe Rabbeinu wasn't the full leader that he became yet, sometimes we have the same thing you know, on our level that we put physicality in front of spirituality. So when Moshe Rabbeinu saw a baby in the wall, Moshe Rabbeinu wanted to save the baby. But then when Moshe Bain was told, oh, by the way, I want you to do this, this to your child, something that's really going to be spiritually terrible for him. And, you know, can you, like, you wonder if, if, if Yisro had made Moshe swear that he would punch his kid in the face, so would Moshe Bain have gone along with it? So and my, my point is that the, the, the Moshe Bain put his kid in spiritual danger, and then because of that, it ended up, you know, okay, his, his child ended up being fine. But what about his child? And I think this, this might speak to the value and the importance of real chinuch. Because Moshe Rabbeinu, you know, he was, he was the Rebbe of everyone. And there's another real concern that, that you find, a phenomenon with a, with a Rav's children. There's a risk with a Rav's children, not just a Rav or a Rebbe. Someone who has a lot of Talmidim, someone who has a lot of people that are dependent on them. So a lot of the time... If the, that rabbi, that rav, that rebbe doesn't give enough time to his own family, so there are risks to the family. And, you know, at the, you know, it's at the family's expense when the, when the rebbe or the rav or the rabbi has to serve for many and more other people. So Moshe Rabbeinu, he's our rebbe, but who is the rebbe of his child? This is a concern, right? And when it comes to chinuch in general, just the concept of withholding chinuch, and guess what? Your kid might survive. Right, your kid might, you know, keep Shabbos, and he might do certain things. And people ask, well, you know, why do I have to go to Eretz Yisrael for the year to engross myself? Why do I need to go Shabbat? Why do I need to go to a yeshiva um, after I come back from yeshiva in Eretz Yisrael? Why do I need to insulate myself? Why is the why do I have to shelter myself? People wonder. 
And the answer is, well, your child is not going to be any more than you unless you're like, you know, and there are exceptions where maybe a person sets up their child to be greater than themselves. Uh, but that's the, but that's what chinuch is. That's you know that's when you wake up and decide that chinuch is important. But if you don't envelop yourself in it, and if you don't if, if you don't um, envelop your kid in it, if you don't insulate your kid in all of that, what do you think is going to happen to the grandkid? You know, the, you know, because again, the grandkid's not going to be greater than um his, than than his father unless his father leads him in that direction, right? And like that, that's the only time. And, 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 but, uh, so, so the point is that if Moshe Rabinu was, um, if he positioned his son in a place for spiritual failure, even if his son made it out not complete, you know, you know, not completely harmed, but that doesn't mean that he wasn't completely unscathed either. It doesn't mean that he, he came out with nothing. And even if he still remained in, in his religion, you know, he, he remained religious, he remained orthodox. But you know, we 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 you know we we have to push for so much more, well, uh, and because and because he didn't, it, maybe that's what put Moshe Rabbeinu's own grandson at risk and not at risk, but also he he failed, and so you know, th- th- that just speaks to the real life concern of of how we bring up our children, how much attention we give to our children, and how much we you know um, how much we worry we should worry just as much about the spirituality as we do the physicality it's not just that my kids should be happy yes your kids should be happy and emotional health and mental health is all important um but you know the the spiritual health is just as important and and i think this i think this is where people make the mistake people say like oh no like um it's as long as my kid is happy as long as my kid is healthy and and you, you like Hashem put into the Bria a way that your kid can be both spiritually healthy and mentally and physically healthy, and we have to be concerned about all of these things, and um, and that, that's because we don't just care about the Olam Hazeh, we care about the Olam Haba, and yes, you need a good Olam Hazeh or at least a good enough Olam Hazeh to be able to function so that you can make it um, to the Olam Haba in a good way, but we don't just uh, discount the Olam Haba. This was the argument that Miriam made to Amram. Uh, Amram said, we should stop having kids. Miriam says, your decree is worse than Paro's, because Paro is only ruining the physical life and the Olam Hazeh the, of the babies, and you're just ending it all. You're ruining the Olam Haba. You're, you're, not, giving, you're not even giving them a chance at the, the spiritual real world. And so, um, you know, if there's one thing that we take away, I guess it's just to keep that as a priority and to, to very much be focused on the chenuch of our children, not to just assume that they'll find Hashem, because even if they do find Hashem, what other schmutz are they going to find along the way? And, and you're going to tell me that they're not going to be impacted by it. There, there was a value to the shelter, and, um, and it's, it's an important balance to know when do we let them go a little bit and when do we pull them back in? You know, have them attached by that string, so to speak, that spiritual um, a spiritual and invisible string that lets them know that, you know, we're still watching them and that, that what's going to happen in their spiritual spiritual future is just as important as their physical. So, you know, we should be a zocha that we shouldn't uh, see such tragedies. Um, we, you know, we should all be on the, the derech of Ratzon Hashem and, and Ratzon HaTorah. And with that, I will bid you a wonderful vach. So keep it real, keep talking, most importantly, keep the Torah. Thank you for joining us here at the database.